Hello, fellow teachers. Welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and uh, thank you so much for joining me this week. This week, we're going to be studying the last official sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, 137 to 138. Now, we're not quite done yet. We've still got the official declarations, uh, the Proclamation on the Family, Articles of Faith, that we'll still cover this year. But this is this is the last of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. We've We've certainly come a long way. So, if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Well, the revelations that we find in sections 137 to 138 weren't added to the official canon of the Doctrine and Covenants until 1981, when the Church released a new edition. And we're so glad they did. These two sections give us two visions given to two different prophets in two very different time periods. Section 137 was received by Joseph Smith in 1836 in Kirtland, and Section 138 was received by Joseph F. Smith in 1918 in Salt Lake City. But thematically, they go hand in hand. Both of them reveal fundamental truths about what happens when we die. And as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we believe in the eternal nature of the Spirit as do many other faiths. But what exactly happens to those spirits after they've left mortality is a question that many religions have wrestled with over the centuries. Reincarnation, limbo, heaven and hell, purgatory, or even the belief that we just cease to exist. What's the truth of the matter? Sections 137 to 138 are going to help us to understand that. As an icebreaker, A video clip is a great way to introduce the background and content of section 137. It's from a church movie that we've looked at before, Joseph Smith, the Prophet of the Restoration. And what you can do is show a clip from timestamp 1209 to 1520. But before you show it, say, doctrinal misunderstandings can have real consequences. What effect did a doctrinal misunderstanding of Joseph Smith's day have on him? The video depicts the death of Joseph Smith's older brother, Alvin, and can help your students understand why this revelation was so important to him and the Smith family. You see, Joseph Smith grew up in a culture that believed that if you didn't accept Christianity and get baptized, that you would be condemned to hell. And this extended to everyone good but non-believing people, the ignorant, and even babies. But something interesting about the Smith family was that they were a bit more religiously progressive than most people at the time. Father and Mother Smith allowed their children to make their own decisions regarding religion and didn't pressure them to join one or the other, or any at all. Joseph had a hero while he was growing up, his older brother. And unfortunately, because of a sickness and a botched medical procedure, Alvin dies at age 25. He'd never been baptized. Like his father, he'd kept himself aloof from joining any of the religions of his day. And so for many years, Joseph wondered and worried about the fate of his beloved older brother. Joseph recalls being told by ministers in Palmyra that Alvin was in hell because he'd not been baptized. Even though he was a good person, it didn't matter. Alvin was doomed to suffer in hell. 
And who was Joseph to doubt their conclusion? Joseph believed deeply in the Bible and studied it extensively. Perhaps verses like John 3, 5 troubled him, which says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Alvin's fate was not the only thing that must have worried Joseph. By the time section 137 is received, he had already buried four of his own children. And he must have been anxious about their fate too. What was going to happen to them? Understanding the backdrop of Joseph's life really helps us to see and feel just how glorious a revelation section 137 really is. So get them into it. There's an activity you could do with your students with the following handout. And since section 137 is relatively short, just 10 verses, I don't think it's too much to ask your students to read the entire section. So I've put together a list of seven statements that may or may not be true about section 137. Have your students read the section and circle the statements that are taught or supported by this section. So here are the statements. And we're going to go through each of these together. So A, the celestial kingdom is a place of glory, beauty, and purity where we can enjoy the presence of the Father and the Son. This statement is true, so they want to circle it. Joseph describes the celestial kingdom as a place of glory and a place of transcendent beauty. He also sees a gate of circling flames and a blazing throne of fire. Fire in the scriptures is often associated with purity or refining. Well, the celestial kingdom is a place where the pure may dwell unencumbered by the pollution of the world. And he also sees the Father and the Son there. Celestial kingdom sure sounds like a place that I'd like to be. And B, those who die without a knowledge of the gospel will inherit the celestial kingdom because their sins were committed in ignorance. And that's a false statement. The promise is not that all who died in ignorance of the gospel will automatically be saved. There's still a judgment to be made. It's not a free pass to all the uninformed. Even if individuals never heard of the church of Jesus Christ, they'll still be judged according to the knowledge that they did have. Let's not forget that the light of Christ is given to all that enter the world. Brigham Young once said that there were in the world a certain number of good, gifted, moral, God-fearing men who would worship him the best they could and acceptably in his eyes according to the light they had received. So, truth has been revealed to mankind throughout the world in many different ways, other than just God's prophets. He's revealed truth through various religious figures, writers, artists, scientists, philosophers, poets. You'd be surprised at the similarities of virtues that are taught within the world's major religions. Charity, service, kindness, chastity, honesty, sacrifice. We have a lot more in common than we sometimes think. So therefore, the Lord is still going to be able to judge all based on the light that they were given. So at the judgment, if you were a Muslim, he might ask, well, what kind of a Muslim were you? If you were a Hindu, what kind of a Hindu were you? If you were a Southern Baptist, what kind of a Southern Baptist were you? Just because an individual wasn't a member of the Church of Jesus Christ 
doesn't mean they didn't have any understanding of right or wrong or any access to truth. So let's go to our next statement. Those who die without a knowledge of the gospel who would have accepted it shall inherit the celestial kingdom. Now that's the true statement. Verses 7 through 8 teach us that thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. And this is where Alvin's situation is addressed. As Joseph looks into heaven, he sees a number of different people. He sees God the Father, the Son, Adam, and Abraham. And that probably didn't surprise him, since you'd expect those individuals to be there. But then things get more interesting. He sees his father and his mother. That's fascinating, because mother and father Smith were still alive in 1836. What a comforting thought for them. Can you imagine Joseph telling them about this vision? Mom, Dad, I saw you in the celestial kingdom. I suppose that could almost qualify as having your calling and election made sure. And then he sees Alvin. And look at the word he uses to describe his reaction. He marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of his sins. And this must have been a beautiful and comforting thing for the family to hear. Considering the Christian theology of the day, at this point, you could show another clip from the Joseph Smith movie. Show them from timestamp 3151 to 331. And that shows Joseph receiving the vision in the Kirtland Temple and then telling his mother about it. And his relief and joy are evident. It can maybe help your students sense just how powerful a moment this must have been for the entire Smith family. Now God had confirmed to Joseph something that he had suspected all along, that it wasn't fair or just for circumstance or death to be the judge of a person's eternal destiny. God was the judge of a person's heart. And that truth extends to all of God's children throughout the world and makes our theology one of the most hopeful and fair of any religion I know of. I can't think of many other faiths that allow for this possibility of exaltation to individuals who have never even heard of their religion. What do you do about the rice farmer and his family in rural China who's never even heard the name Jesus Christ. In our faith, they have just as much of a chance of being in the celestial kingdom as any of us. And Joseph once explained this principle of of fair judgment. He said, The plans of Jehovah are not so unjust, the statements of holy writ so visionary, nor the plan of salvation for the human family so incompatible with common sense. At such proceedings, God would frown with indignance. Angels would hide their heads in shame, and every virtuous, intelligent man would recoil. If human laws award to each man his deserts and punish all delinquents according to their several crimes, 
Surely the Lord will not be more cruel than man. For he is a wise legislator, and his laws are more equitable, his enactments more just, and his decisions more perfect than those of man. And as man judges his fellow man by law, and punishes him according to the penalty of the law, so does God of heaven judge, according to the deeds done in the body. To say that the heathens would be damned because they did not believe the gospel would be preposterous. And to say that the Jews would all be damned that do not believe in Jesus would be equally absurd. For how can they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can he preach except he be sent? Consequently, neither Jew nor heathen can be culpable for rejecting the conflicting opinions of sectarianism, nor for rejecting any testimony but that which is sent of God. For as the preacher cannot preach except he be sent, so the hearer cannot believe without he hear a sent preacher, and cannot be condemned for what he has not heard, and being without law will have to be judged without law. And I agree with Joseph. A lot of those theories and creeds of man are incompatible with common sense. God is not more cruel than man. He's fair. He's merciful. And another quick thought. I'm not sure if this is the message that section 137 is meaning to send, but it's fun to think that perhaps we will have a similar experience to Joseph's if we obtain the celestial kingdom. Will there be individuals that we're surprised to see there? Will we marvel? Perhaps there are family members or acquaintances who we would assume wouldn't make it. Sometimes people wonder about loved ones who may have committed suicide or who strayed from the path, and they worry about their chances for exaltation. Maybe we will marvel to see those people there living prophets have taught that the judgment will reside with God, and we may not understand all the factors that contributed to why people did the things they did. We can rest assured that they'll be judged according to a perfect balance of justice and mercy. And as we'll see later in today's lesson, post-mortal decisions will also come into play. And who knows, maybe there will be people who will be surprised to see us there. Let's move on, because the remainder of section 137 and section 138 is going to help us to understand God's judgment even better. Verse 9, to me, has to be one of the most reassuring and hopeful verses in all of the standard works. It says, For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Well, that verse contains my favorite punctuation mark of all scripture. It's that comma right after the word works. I'm so grateful that it's not a period. Because if it's a period right there, you and I are in a great amount of trouble. If I'm only going to be judged by my works, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. It's not a period. It's a comma. What else is God going to take into consideration? The desire of our hearts. And so we go to our next statement. The Lord will judge us according to how much we did right compared to how much we did wrong. 
If we did more right, we'll be saved in the celestial glory. If we did more wrong, we will inherit a lesser kingdom. And that's got to be false. That's not the way God judges us. He isn't going to just put all of our good deeds on one side and all our bad deeds on the other. And if the scales tip towards good, we receive exaltation. Or if the scales tip more towards the bad, that we're going to find ourselves in a celestial or terrestrial glory. So E, the Lord will judge us based on the things we did and our motives for doing them. This is the correct statement. The Lord will definitely judge us based on the things we did. Can't minimize that. Our actions do matter. And we will be judged for what we did on this earth. But that's not all. God will also consider our desires. Did we want to be good? Jesus made an interesting statement on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The hunger we have to be good and the thirst that we have for righteousness means something to God. I know of very good righteous individuals whose hearts are filled with guilt and anxiety over their weaknesses, and they wonder if they're going to make it. My answer to them, if you're worried about it, that probably indicates something about your heart. You want to be good. You have desires in your heart for righteousness. That's going to count for something in the eyes of God. Yes, it's true that many will say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's an accurate statement. We can't just go through life wishing and never doing. But even though the road to hell may indeed be paved with good intentions, apparently so is the road to heaven. I will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. You see the same sentiment taught in Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, verse 9. And this is in regards to spiritual gifts. For verily I say unto you, they, spiritual gifts, are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments. Comma, again, another great comma. And him that seeketh so to do, that all may be benefited that seek or that ask of me. So once again, an example of God promising blessings to those who manifest their desire to follow God's will, even when they may fail to execute it perfectly. I'm so grateful for that truth, because if God will just add my desires for righteousness to the scale, perhaps that will be just enough to tip them in my favor. Our next statement, F. Children who die before they arrive at the age of accountability will enter the celestial kingdom. And that statement's true. Verse 10. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. This simple statement corrects that age-old notion of the fate of unbaptized children. I recall my mother telling me the story of something that happened to her aunt as she sat at a bus stop in rural Canada. And she came upon a woman weeping unconsolably. And being a kind-hearted and sensitive woman, she asked her what was wrong and if if she could do anything to help. 
And the woman responded by saying, my baby died, my baby died. So my, my mother's aunt, she responded with sympathy and comfort and then asked, oh, I'm so sorry, when did this happen? Ten years ago, she responded. Now, a little shocked by this, she asked her why this was still affecting her so deeply. And she answered, I never had my baby baptized, and now my baby's in hell. I'll never forgive myself for not getting my baby baptized. So you can see this doctrine of infant damnation had disturbed this poor woman for 10 years. And you see why we're so fortunate that we have a section 137 understanding. Emma also worried greatly about the fate of her children that had died in infancy. And that concern actually continues throughout her life. Just before she dies, she has a dream where she encounters Joseph. And she describes it this way. Joseph came to me and said to me, Emma, come with me. It's time for you to come with me. I put on my bonnet and my shawl and went with him. I did not think that it was anything unusual. I went with him into a mansion, a beautiful mansion, and he showed me through the different apartments of that beautiful mansion, and one room was the nursery. In that nursery was a babe in a cradle. I knew my babe, my Don Carlos that was taken away from me. I sprang forward, caught up the child in my arms, and wept with joy over the child. When I recovered myself sufficient, I turned to Joseph and said, Joseph, where are the rest of my children? And he said, Emma, be patient, and you shall have all of your children. This has got to be one of the most comforting and reassuring doctrines for parents who lose children. Losing a child is a difficult enough experience as it is. I'm sure our Father in Heaven has no desire to add to that difficulty by prompting parents to question the fate of their children's spirits. They're saved. It's just that simple. And so, G, children who die before the age of eight will be tested later in the spirit world. This last statement, as far as I know, is not a doctrine that's taught by section 137. But I put this statement in there because I think it highlights an interesting question. This revelation answers and solves the problem of the unfairness of condemning unbaptized children. But it does create another question. One might ask, where is the justice in allowing children to be exalted automatically? Should I have hoped for that circumstance myself in order to secure my exaltation? And I'm not quite sure how to answer that one, I'm afraid. Maybe somebody wiser out there than me has a better explanation for that question. And put it in the comments if you do. But I suppose that my answer to that question would be, well, let's allow God to be merciful. Saving those children is an act of mercy. And what a beautiful blessing afforded to those who didn't get the opportunity to experience much of mortality. So our truths, all people who die without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it, will inherit the celestial kingdom. The Lord will judge us by our works and the desires of our hearts. And all children who die before they become accountable will be saved in the celestial kingdom. Each of these doctrines are very 
hope-infusing truths. So the like in the scriptures question is, which of these three truths gives you the most hope and why? It's apparent to me that much of the joy of the celestial kingdom revolves around people and relationships. I know that I want to be in a place where I can enjoy the same sociality that exists among us here, only coupled with eternal glory. Just imagine the kind of relationship you will have with your spouse, your children, your friends, when all the baggage of mortality and the natural man are left behind. Those relationships can be amazing here on earth with all that baggage. How much better will they be there? Heaven often seems like such an unattainable goal, but I believe that when all is said and done and the judgment is over, we will see that many have obtained it. As a student of the scriptures, I have a lot of faith in the mercy of God. And I believe that if our hearts are right and we want to be good, all of God's blessings will be ours. God is fair. God is just. God is merciful. Section 137 proves that. Section 138. And a brief thought here from the beginning of that section. There's a powerful message about scripture study here. And so for an icebreaker, I like to say something that really gets their attention. So for a little bit of shock value, I say, everyone, I really wish that you would all just stop reading your scriptures. I don't want you reading them here in class, and I don't want you reading them at home. In fact, I think it's really unfortunate that so many people in the church read their scriptures so often. Because me, I never read the scriptures. It, trust me, that's really going to get their attention. So then I say, now before you stand up and leave, let me explain what I mean. The scriptures use much better words than just read to describe how we interact with them. Rather than merely read them, we're instructed to study them, meditate on them, search them, lay hold upon them, liken them, treasure them up, and feast upon them. But for heaven's sakes, don't just read them. We read novels, we read magazines, we read instruction manuals, but we study the scriptures. Section 138 is a perfect example of the power of scripture study. In 1918, Joseph F. Smith had an incredible vision of the spirit world. And it was scripture study that acted as the catalyst for that experience. I want you to read verses 1 through 11 and mark all the words and phrases that describe what Joseph F. Smith did that helped lead to this vision. How did he study the scriptures? Here's what I see. He sat in his room. He found a quiet place where he could be alone. Scripture study will always be more effective when we remove all distractions from around us. Turn off the television. Silence the cell phone. Find a place where you can be alone. Revelation comes more easily in peaceful settings. He was pondering over the scriptures. The definition of ponder is to weigh in the mind, to reflect on, 
to think or consider, especially quietly, soberly, and deeply. And when we do this with the scriptures, we invite revelation. He was reflecting on the doctrine of the atonement and the love of God. And to reflect is to think deeply on something that you've heard or considered before. When we study the scriptures, it's good to keep our minds open to things that we've been taught or wish to understand better. His mind was engaged. And I love that one. If we wish to get more out of the scriptures, we've got to engage our minds. Turn them on. Sometimes I think we just mindlessly skim through the scriptures or go through the motions. Do we just read our chapter for the night so that we can cross it off our to-do list? Or do we engage in actively seeking wisdom and revelation? He opened the Bible. You can't get much out of the scriptures if you don't open them. And I'm intrigued by the fact that all the previous verbs we looked at came before he ever even opened the scriptures. He came to them with a question or concern in mind. Then the Spirit was able to inspire and guide him to the verses that held the key to the answer. We can do the same. Before you even study, have a question in mind, and then actively look for how the Scriptures address that issue. He was impressed by certain passages of the Scriptures. When our minds and hearts are engaged, the Spirit may impress things upon us. Certain verses, thoughts, or words are going to catch our attention and stand out. The Spirit will emphasize the things that we personally need most to understand. And then in verse 11, the word pondered is used again. And pondering may be one of the most important scripture study tools that you can have in your toolbox. Sometimes I'll tell my students that if they came by in the morning during my preparation period, they might look into the window of my office and see me leaning back in my chair, feet up on my desk, staring off into space. And they might be tempted to think, wow, look at that lazy brother Wilcox. What a life, sitting around doing nothing. But what they wouldn't realize is that they're actually witnessing me doing the hardest work of my day. I'm pondering in those moments. My mind is reflecting, engaging, and being impressed upon by the Spirit. It's when I'm deeply concentrating that revelation and understanding comes. Some of the most important scripture study that you will ever do will take place when you're not even looking at the scriptures. And sometimes people will come up to me after teaching and and will say, I've never seen that before in the scriptures. How did you find that? They almost think that it's like magic or that I'm some kind of scriptural guru. But I'm going to make a little confession here. I'm no more of a scriptural expert than anybody else. The secret is pondering. I take the time to ponder. And I'm certain that anyone who's willing to do the same is going to discover their own powerful principles as well. What was the result of President Smith's pondering? Verse 11, the eyes of his understanding were opened. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him, and he saw great things. Truth, if we ponder, reflect on, and engage with the Scriptures, 
the Spirit will open the eyes of our understanding. So to liken the scriptures, I invite you to try this out for yourself. Today, in your scripture study, be sure to spend at least five minutes just pondering on something that you find in the scriptures. Turn your gaze away from the actual page and reflect on what you've read. And then just see what happens. And I'm confident that if you do this consistently, your relationship with the scriptures is going to change forever. You'll enjoy and look forward to it more. You'll be edified and enlightened every time you sit down to study. Well, one of the things I believe is important to keep in mind when it comes to this vision of Joseph F. Smith is the date that it's received. October of 1918. Now, just consider the following facts about Joseph F. Smith. His father, Hiram Smith, was murdered when Joseph was just five years old. His mother, Mary Fielding Smith, died when he was 13. One of his wives and 13 of his children will die in his lifetime. His oldest son, Hiram Max Smith, had died just months earlier due to a ruptured appendix. He'd been serving as an apostle at the time. And by 1918, what's going on in the world? Well, nine million people have died in World War I. And at the very time that he has this vision, the Spanish flu pandemic was claiming lives all over the world. Fifty million people are going to die before it runs its course. And then Joseph F. Smith himself wasn't well at this time. Ultimately, he's going to die just a few weeks later after this revelation is received. Perhaps he was contemplating his own passing as well. So needless to say, Joseph F. Smith was someone who was very familiar with death. It's fitting that the one canonized revelation that he gives us is all about the spirit world. Well, you're going to all start thinking that all I do now is suggest videos for icebreakers anymore. But I do have another one for you. To introduce section 138, I like to show a portion of the video, To This End Was I Born that depicts the last hours of the Savior's life. And you may just want to show the final scenes of the Savior on the cross and his body being placed in the tomb. And you'll find this part by showing them from timestamp 1728 to 2423. As soon as the stone is rolled over the entrance of the tomb, pause the video and ask, what happened next? What would you imagine the next scene of the video is going to be? And many students might guess that it's the resurrection. They'll see Jesus rising from the tomb and meeting Mary. However, that isn't what happened next. Remember that Jesus' mortal body lay in the tomb for three days. Where was Jesus' spirit in the meantime? What was he doing? And you then continue the video to show them what happened next. There's a short scene of Jesus in the spirit world. And that little scene is going to be the basis for the rest of the lesson. And after watching the video, you can give them the following study guide handout. And usually, I'll have them work with the partner to answer the questions together. And then you can just spend the remainder of the lesson 
correcting and discussing their answers. And we'll go through each of the questions together here, and maybe I can give you some ideas and insights that you could use to enhance your discussion. So number one, who were the people in white robes in the video? Well, verses 11 and 12, they were the dead or the spirits of the just people who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality. And there's something that I noticed this time as I read section 138 in regard to this group of righteous people. It says that it was an innumerable company of the spirits of the just. In verse 18, they're referred to as a vast multitude. Verse 38 speaks of a vast congregation, and verse 49 calls them a vast assembly. How hopeful is that? I've always had the impression that the numbers of the righteous are small. But this revelation describes a vast multitude. There are many, many individuals in that group, an innumerable amount. Exaltation is not just a blessing that only the elite or the few will enjoy. Exaltation lies in the grasp of countless individuals. Heaven's crowded it seems. And maybe that thought can help us to not get so discouraged as we strive to walk the Lord's path. Well, number two, what are four words or phrases that describe these people? Verses 12 to 14. Well, we've already seen the words just and faithful. And to those, we could add that they were people who had offered sacrifice that had suffered tribulation for their faith. And they are those who died firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection. Number three, can you give me at least six of the names of the people that were there? That's in verses 38 to 49. Let's see. You've got Adam and then Eve, who, by the way, I know it's just a video and this doesn't happen in the scriptures, but at the end of that scene, the Savior embraces somebody. It got me thinking. Who might those first embraces go to? Wouldn't it be fitting for it to be Adam and Eve, those who brought about the fall, making our mortality possible, connecting with the one who had just overcome the fall? And that's just a thought. But along with Eve, who else do we have included here? Abel, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elias, Malachi. And you could add all the prophets who dwelt among the Nephites from the Book of Mormon. So I'm sure that he would have seen Nephi and Alma and Moroni too. So number four, why did all the people in white robes have such big smiles on their faces? You can find answers to that in 15 to 18, 23 to 24, and 50 to 51. And now we get to the meat of it here. In verse 15, they were filled with joy because the day of their deliverance was at hand. And what an interesting dichotomy of emotions between the righteous on earth and the righteous in the spirit world. What are they feeling back on earth at this very time? Great sadness, weeping, confusion, mourning. But in the spirit world, great joy and anticipation. 
Now, I'm sure those in the spirit world were also saddened by the crucifixion and the pain that Jesus suffered. But knowing what he had just accomplished and what he was about to do for them, they couldn't help but rejoice. Maybe there's a message in that. Depending on where you are, your perspective on death changes. Yes, death may be very tragic and difficult for us to understand here. But what if we were to see things from the other side? We may feel differently about the situation. They were rejoicing. They had been waiting for the Savior to declare the redemption from the bands of death. Now, usually we associate words like bands and deliverance with the wicked and spirit prison. But even those that are in spirit paradise are in a type of bondage, a bondage of death. They were going to be freed, resurrected, restored to their perfect frame. They're described as captives in verse 18. And in verse 23, they were to be delivered from death and the chains of hell. Whoa, that's an interesting term to throw in there. Chains of hell in reference to the righteous. Not having our bodies must be difficult for us as spirits. And then verse 50 teaches us that the dead look upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage. Why were they so happy then? They were about to be freed from bondage. Even though they were already in a state of peace and rest in spirit paradise, they couldn't wait to be reunited with flesh and bone once again. So I love what they do in verse 24. It says that they sang praises unto his holy name. Their joy causes them to break into song. And that got me thinking, what song would you sing? Is there a hymn that you would choose if you were there? What would it be like to sing, How Great Thou Art? Or, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. Or, I Believe in Christ, with Him standing right there. What a moment. And number five, what group of people was not in the video and why? Verses 20 through 22 and 29. The wicked are not there. Unto the wicked he did not go. And let's look at all the words and phrases that are used to describe that group. The ungodly, unrepentant, defiled, rebellious. They are those who rejected the testimonies of the prophets. In verse 29, we have the word wicked again. Disobedient, rejected the truth. This group is also in bondage. But the reason he didn't go there is, is not because he didn't love them. It wasn't because they were beneath his care or concern. I mean, in life, he spent all kinds of time with that type of people. Verses 25 to 28 seem to suggest that it was a time constraint, only three days. And you know, when we say that Jesus laid in the tomb for three days, we don't even mean three full 24-hour periods. He died on a Friday and was raised Sunday morning. So this was a quick visit to the spirit world. Now, I don't understand all the doctrinal ins and outs of that. Could he not have gone back after his resurrection? I don't know. And verse 37 suggests a different reason for him not teaching the wicked. It says because of their rebellion and transgression. So which is it? Or was it a combination of the two? And I imagine that both could play a role. Number six, 
What would the Savior have done next in the video if the scene were to continue? Answers in verses 30 through 32 and 36 through 37. But behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers, clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. And the chosen messengers went forth to declare the acceptable day of the Lord and proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound, even unto all who would repent of their sins and receive the gospel. Thus was the gospel preached to those who had died in their sins, without a knowledge of the truth or in transgression, having rejected the prophets. And verses 36 to 37 carry a similar sentiment. What we would have seen then in the video is Jesus organizing post-mortal missionary work, that they, through the ministration of his servants, might also hear his words. Death does not mark the end of heavenly efforts to save souls. I think I used to have the impression that missionary work in the spirit world was primarily directed to those who had died without a knowledge of the truth, the ignorant who had never heard of Jesus or the church or the gospel. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. It is also preached to those who died in their sins, those in darkness, those who had rejected the prophets, the wicked. So just because somebody dies in a state of rebellion or disobedience or ungodliness, doesn't mean that they're cast off forever or don't have hope. There seem to be three groups of individuals that are highlighted in section 138. The righteous, the ignorant, and the wicked. All of them are in some kind of bondage. God provides a way for all three groups to be freed from the chains that hold them down. Whether that's the chains of death and not having a body, the chains of ignorance, or the chains of sin. God makes it possible for all those chains to be broken. It seems like the spirit world is very much like our world here, a continuation of experience and opportunity. People will continue to have the chance to change, to repent, to commit themselves to Jesus Christ, just like they do here. Sadly, there's still going to be many who continue to use their agency to reject the gospel message. So, number seven, what is that other group of people taught? Verses 33 to 34. The first principles and ordinances of the gospel with just a bit of a twist. Faith, repentance, then vicarious baptism for the remission of sins, and vicarious confirmation of the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we know now that all saving ordinances are available to them through the work we do in the temple. There's something else I'd like to add from verse 37 to this thought. Those that preach carry the message of redemption unto all the dead. Perhaps that might be the message that they most need to hear. I imagine that many of these souls are in a state of despair, thinking all is lost, drowning in regret and fear. Maybe they feel the way that Alma the Younger described feeling in Alma 36. Racked in torment, horror, harrowed up by the memory of all their sins, wishing that they could become extinct both body and soul. 
And perhaps all they need is someone to come and teach them concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a Son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. We may not need to spend so much time and effort convincing them to change, but it may take more effort to teach and convince them that they can change. Not all the teaching is just, you've got to repent, you need to understand this. But maybe it's, hey, you can be redeemed. There is an atonement. There is mercy. There is love. It's not too late. Salvation is still available to you. So number eight, who else gets to join in that work? Verse 57, I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. So all righteous individuals will continue to have the joy of sharing the gospel and the good news of Christ's redemption and mercy. Now, I love missionary work. There are few things greater in life than seeing the message of the gospel change someone. To be an instrument in God's hand is a powerful privilege. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just sit around in spirit paradise resting forever. Although a little bit of that will be nice. I want to go to work. I want to go to hell or spirit prison and help free captives from the bonds of sin and ignorance. And if you're worried that it only says faithful elders in that verse, I would refer you back to verse 39. Who else was included in that vast congregation that President Smith saw? Along with our glorious Mother Eve, there were also many of her faithful daughters who had lived through the ages and worshipped the true and living God. The women are not excluded in this effort. The teaching of the gospel in the spirit world is not just a duty and opportunity for ordained priest bearers, but all of God's faithful sons and daughters. So sisters, if you never felt like you had the opportunity to serve a mission or marriage came first for you, you too will have that privilege to preach and share the gospel in the world of spirits. Number nine. What must those people do in order to break out of prison? Verses 58 to 59. They need to repent and be obedient to the ordinances of the house of God. Notice that it says they aren't redeemed by the ordinances of the temple, but through their obedience to the ordinances of the temple. And this suggests that there's a chance to obey in the spirit world, that there is an agency that can be exercised in the next life. And this is also a reminder to the living. We too are not redeemed just because we've received temple ordinances. We must be obedient to those temple ordinances or the covenants that we've made while receiving them. Back to the prisoners here. In verse 59, And after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions and are washed clean, shall receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. So those in prison do pay a penalty. Alma's feelings come to mind again. The wicked do suffer a consequence for their actions on this earth. 
So this should help to dissuade anyone from being foolish enough to procrastinate the day of their repentance in this life by counting on some future change of heart in the world of spirits. But they can be washed clean and receive a reward and become heirs of salvation. So truth, righteous individuals will have the opportunity to preach the gospel in the spirit world. Individuals who never had a chance to receive the gospel will have that opportunity in the spirit world. Wicked and rebellious individuals will have an opportunity to repent and be redeemed in the spirit world. So to liken the scriptures, which of those three doctrines is most exciting or hopeful to you? And why? What do these doctrines of the spirit world reveal to you about God. In conclusion, one final thought. There is something that impresses me most about the message of these two sections. As doctrinal and specific as they are, there seems to be one overarching or foundational principle that shines through each verse. In our study of section 137, we discovered that we will be judged according to our works and desires that we had while in this life. But that is not all that's going to be taken into consideration. 138 verse 56 speaks of individuals who were prepared to do certain things on earth because of how they reacted to their first lessons in the world of spirits. And we've now learned that it is even the wicked and rebellious not just the ignorant who's going to have an opportunity to be taught the gospel again and repent in the next life. It appears to me that we will be judged not only for our mortal deeds and desires, but for our pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal deeds and desires. God offers many, many chances to his children to change, to repent, and to come unto him. So what's the message that impresses me most? God's mercy, his grace, his goodness. He wants to save all. His work and his glory is the immortality and eternal life of mankind. And he's going to expend every effort and offer every occasion for his children to attain that outcome. And indeed, What was the subject on Joseph F. Smith's mind when this vision occurred? What was he pondering? Verses 2 and 3. And reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world, and the great and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and the Son in the coming of the Redeemer into the world. He was thinking about God's great and wonderful love. That was the genesis of the whole subject. God loves his children. God loves you and he loves me more than we can ever imagine. He loves the just and the faithful. He loves the wicked and rebellious. And his love is not just a mere feeling. Love is a verb to God not just a noun. He acts on that love and is ever reaching out his arms to invite his children to use their divinely granted agency to come to him 
and enjoy all he has to offer. As John concluded in one of his epistles, God is love. He's the living embodiment of that principle. And that's all I have for you today, uh, my friends. Thank you for spending this time with me in the scriptures. You know how much I enjoy it. Uh, If any of you teachers out there would like access to the resources that I produce, uh, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find the links to those resources. If you found what we talked about today helpful, please share it with somebody that you know it could help. Hit the like and subscribe buttons, make a comment. All of those things are going to help the channel to grow. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.